You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, March 27, 2022 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. As you make your way to Genesis chapter 1, let me ask you a question to kind of set our time together up a little bit. And here's the question. What does it mean to be human? Yeah, y'all can go ahead and discuss that and, and give me an answer when you figure it out. <laughs> what does it mean to be human? I mean, there's hardly a, a more fundamental question that can be asked. I mean, how you answer that question, not so much with the words, but how you answer that question in your heart and in your mind will give shape to the way you view yourself and you view the world around you and others around you and the way you view yourself and the way you view the others and the way that you then treat them are all born out of the way that you answer this question. What does it mean to be human? It doesn't take but a brief look to the news at night and to wander around a bookstore that still exists, if any of them still exist, and see the real estate given over to self-improvement and self-help to realize that between the way we treat each other on the news, the way we treat ourselves, and the, the help we're so desperately craving, we, we need to get an answer to this question. What does it actually mean to be human? Outside of the Bible, one person has probably helped me with this more than anyone else, and his name is Richard Pratt. He's a, a theologian and a professor, I've been a pastor for a number of years, and he tells a story uh, of speaking at a convention in Chicago well over a decade ago, like 20 years ago probably. He was in Chicago to speak, it was a theological convention, and he was there, and it was Chicago. It was cold, it was rainy, uh, he was stuck in his hotel, so he grabbed the local paper. And he opened up the local paper, and his eyes caught a particular headline that he was intrigued by. Uh, The headline was this. It was called The Irony of Being Human. And so he said he began to read the article. And the article basically talked about the irony of being human from two particular stories. Uh, The first story was of a young woman in her early 20s. Uh, story was that she had told her husband and her children that she was leaving them for another man. And she had gone to a hotel where she would meet this other man. Together, they were going to leave their spouses, leave their families, and go somewhere new and start a new life together. And so she gets to the hotel, and she's waiting for this man to show up, and he finally arrives. And when he arrives, he tells her that he was going back to be with his wife and his family. And in fact, he had never actually told them about her and what had been going on. But she had told her husband, and she had told her family. And he left and and went back, and she was there in the hotel room. And as the story goes, later on that night, that young woman in that hotel room took her life. And when people showed up, when police showed up and, and found her, they found a note. The note was very simple. It simply said, don't cry for me. I'm not even human anymore. And if we're really honest, there's... No loss of the number of people who feel that way about themselves. I'm not really worth the air I'm consuming. You know, we have a version of it in the church. We we call it worm theology. I'm nothing. I'm insignificant. I'm worthless. I'm just a shameful sinner. And as the story went on, it, it was a juxtaposition between two stories. That's what makes it irony. And Pratt said the second story that this columnist was writing about took place exactly in the same hotel on the same day and in the same night. 
While this woman was upstairs making this decision in the upper floors of that hotel, downstairs in its ballroom, a convention was taking place. And this will date the, the article. It was a new age convention. We don't really talk about that anymore. You have to be a little bit older to catch that term. But it was a new age convention. And they had brought a, a famous new age guru there to lead and to teach in this convention. And that night, as that woman made that decision and took her life, as the famous guru was finishing up her teaching downstairs just below, she had everybody who was present stand up and together they all chanted in unison I am God, I am God I am God and the writer who was writing this story compiling these two moments together she ended the story this way that's the irony of being human that people in the same place at the same time can think such opposite things of themselves On the one hand, I'm nothing, and on the other hand, I'm God. And when I heard Dr. Pratt tell the story, the point that he was making in telling the story shouldn't really surprise us. That reality shouldn't surprise us. If you just stop and consider that from the moment you began to take in input as a child, as you began to hear about the world around you and hear about your place in the world and hear the stories that make sense of it, you're you're actually told in 10,000 different ways that really you're just the random byproduct of time and chance. You're just one more rung on a ladder of evolutionary primeval ooze that's made its way to this point in time. The phrase lucky mud comes out of that. That's what you are as a human. Ultimately, you're nothing. There's no inherent significance to that. You were just a random product of time and chance. And yet at the same time, each of us now is taught that we're snowflakes. So special, so unique, that we can do anything and everything we want if we could just put our mind to it. And we have every right to be able to do it. Robert Bella and Charles Taylor, contemporary philosophers, are the ones who coined the the phrase to explain this in our day. They call it expressive individualism. They said the goal of life in expressive individualism is to discover and express your unique self, regardless of what anyone else may say or do. In fact, to quote them, they say the narrative arc of your life is finding out your personal route to happiness by following your individual heart, expressing your true self, and then fighting whoever would oppose you, your society, your family, your past, or even your religious institution. You're your own God. You get to determine your own meaning, purpose, value, everything. And so Dr. Pratt said it shouldn't be surprising as we read that story about the irony of being human because at the same time, in the same place, ever since we took a breath, we've been told at the same time that ultimately we're really not significant. We come from nothing, we really amount to nothing, and at the same time we should be our own God. And what this mixture of messages and stories has produced in our world and in our lives is what psychologists like to call cognitive dissonance. We live in the land of cognitive dissonance. Webster's Dictionary defines cognitive dissonance this way. It's the psychological conflict. So it's the mental, emotional conflict inside of yourself that results from incompatible beliefs and attitudes that are held simultaneously. Right? It's the stress of trying to hold together and then live out of two contradictory views. 
Now, I like the way that Webster defines it because at least Webster's dictionary tries to put a little bit of optimism on the spin there. Because they say that trying to hold and live out of two contradictory views should produce in you some kind of stress. It should produce in you some kind of conflict. The product of which we see in so many things we hear about today in the people's search for significance and the search of finding who they really are because the stories they've been fed have different objectives and different sources and so there's a mass confusion. And so we spin out in 10,000 different ways trying to find the answer. At least it acknowledges that a stress and a conflict is produced. Oxford Dictionary defines it a little bit differently. The Oxford Dictionary defines cognitive dissonance as the state of having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, and attitudes, especially as relating to behavioral decisions and change. And then when they apply the definition, they say this, it's the process of holding two mutually exclusive beliefs without noticing the inherent opposition. That, my friends, I think better defines the reality of the world in which we live. There are those who do live in the land of cognitive dissonance. It's a land we're born into. And it does produce a level of stress. It does produce a level of conflict internally. And that begins to propel out a a search, a sense of trying to resolve the question. But for the majority, we have found a way to create within ourselves boundaries and categories and containers for the dissonance, for the contradiction to be able to remain at peace and comfort with the contradiction. Why? Because we want what we want when we want it. And if I can find a way to want what I want and get what I want and find a way to ignore somehow internally the dissonance between what I say I think matters and what I believe matters and how I'm actually living to choose, choosing to live that out, then I can be at peace with myself. One writer says, we like holding conflicting beliefs more than we like thinking. And that's the reality. Oxford's right. We hold mutually exclusive beliefs in our minds and hearts without noticing the inherent opposition. And the result isn't leaving us conflicted and stressed and on a search for meaning. It's leaving us shallow and content to live in the shallowness of that kind of existence. Because I found a way to make space in the dissonance. Because I want what I want when I want it. Life then just becomes a marathon exercise of cognitive dissonance. Paul would describe us in the New Testament as children tossed to and fro by the waves. Carried about by every wind of doctrine or idea. By human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Back and forth and back and forth, just trying to make peace between the dissonance. But here's the thing, those identities, those stories, those contradictory beliefs that we're holding tight to, they shape how we live. They shape the way we see ourselves, the way we shape our understanding of ourselves, and the way we understand and live with other people. See, there's no more significant area of life that's impacted by our cognitive dissonance than ultimately our view of what it means to be human. Of all the things we talk about, about how we live and what we do, underneath it all comes an understanding of what it means to be human. And so how do we get an answer? How do we understand? You might remember, if you've been with us for a few weeks, that I quoted a Scottish philosopher, not because I read a lot of Scottish philosophy, but because of books that I read quote Scottish philosophers. And Alistair McDare 
He said, in order to make sense of our lives, we depend on a story to provide the broader framework of meaning for our life. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, which comes out of an understanding of who I am, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself a part of. Missionary, theologian, Leslie Newbigin said it's similar but different. The way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life is a part? Better yet, is there one true story for all people at all times and in all places which gives shape and definition and meaning to our story in this world? Christianity would answer the question and argue the point that there is one such story. And for the last several weeks, we've been looking at that story through the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's, it's our normal course here. Take like a book of the Bible, start at the beginning, go all the way through to the end, however long it takes us. But sometimes, and in some seasons, we take smaller parts and, and smaller pieces and try to understand them in, in their own unique ways. And so for the last several weeks, we've been going through Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with a big picture view of the story that God is giving us that helps give shape to our understanding of our story in this world. We've been looking at the forest, not so much the trees. But now that we've made our way through it, we're going to circle back. And we're going to look at some of the trees in the story. Some of the more significant things we came across in more detail than we were able to give them in the past few weeks. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Because if we've learned anything over the past few weeks, it's that we were made by God to live according to his story. Not a story of our own making. And his story makes all the difference in understanding what it means for us to be human. Who we are. How we live. Who we are and, and, and how we be in the world in which he is made. And so if you've got your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin to try to trust God for the clarity our hearts are after by, by looking right back at the beginning of the story. We don't have to go far to get an idea to how God answers the question, what it means to be human. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to dive into something we only briefly talked about a few weeks ago. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 record God's first words about humanity. I mean, if you were to think about what God says about humans, what God says about you as a human, my guess is the first words that come to mind aren't these. There's something related to sinner, something related to to rebel, something related to traitor, depending on what church background you come from, what your history is. They're not these. These, though, are God's first recorded words about humanity, and that matters. Listen to what he says. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man worthless particles bouncing around in the cosmos. Is that what he said? Genesis 1 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. You see, to understand what it means to be human. To begin to understand how we answer that question in light of the one true story of which our life finds its place and finds its meaning. You and I have to talk about what it means and then what the implications are to being created in the image and likeness of God. 
or, or what many of you, if you grew up in the church, know as referred to as the Latin phrase, the imago Dei, the image of God. And here's the first problem we encounter when we try to understand what this means and try to understand how this shapes our understanding of the answer of what it means to be human. The imago Dei as language, as phrasing, uh, being created in the image and likeness of God as, as a phrase has become enshrined in the vernacular of Christianese. It's one of these phrases that if you're around church people very long, around church very long, you've heard a lot of times in a lot of ways in a lot of different perspectives. And what happens is when we, we use a word or we use a phrase like this without really knowing what it means, we empty the sense of import, we empty the sense of weight, we empty the sense of gravity of what it means about us. All of a sudden, when it's just a phrase that we throw around, we lose the weight of what it means and we lose the full sense of who we actually are. And so by losing the weight of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God, because it's a phrase that we're just familiar with, we don't really know what it means. When we find ourselves in the land of cognitive dissonance, we go looking for other stories to answer the question what it means to be human. How am I to understand who I am? How am I to understand who you are? How am I to understand what that means for how we live? You can answer me, well, what it means to be human is to be created in the image of God. But do you know what that means? I would argue that if you were to take not our words, but if you were some way to project up on the screen what we thought that meant in our hearts and our minds and the way we lived in light of it, we might have a bit of a different definition. It might actually be a blank screen. And so we're going to need to understand what it actually means first. And then what the implications of that are. And it'll take a, a little bit of time. It'll take a couple of weeks probably to do this. But to begin, let me just acknowledge kind of the historical landscape for the way the church has tried to define this phrase and answer this question of what it means to be human. When the church historically has taught about what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God, one of the most consistent things you may hear, and if you grew up in church and you heard someone talk about this, this may be what you were taught. It, the way that you understand what it be, means to be made in the image of God is to understand what differentiates you from every other creature in creation. Right? You have the capacity to reason. There's a rationality to you that doesn't exist in the rest of the created order. There's an inherent sense of morality. Right? There's no due process happening on the plains of the Serengeti, right? When that lion takes down that wildebeest, no one's holding him accountable, right? Right, but we have somehow created this sense of due process and justice and rationality. We have the capacity to think and to create. Therefore, the things that make us distinct from the rest of the creation is understanding being made in the image and likeness of God and that we have these capacities about us. Well, and as true as those things are represented in the scriptures, yes and amen. But there's another way that history has talked about what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God. It doesn't deny those realities. It actually says in a more full way what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God is the capacity that we have as humans to have deep, personal, interconnected relationships. Most importantly, the connection and the communion that we have the capacity to have with God. The connection and the intimacy and the mutual dependence we have with one another. And even the relationship that we have with the rest of God's created order. God himself is a relationship, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, a community in himself to be made in his image and likeness is us reflecting that capacity for that kind of community. 
And as much as that's reflected in the story of Scripture, yes and amen, it's true. But is that really what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God? Is that it? Is that sum it up? Well, here's the problem. When Moses records Genesis chapter 1, as God inspires him to write it, and then God preserves it faithfully for you and I, he just declares it. He doesn't actually say anything else. He just makes a declaration. This is what God said. Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And each of us ever since has wanted bullet points under that. What does that mean? And so we go, try to read the rest of Scripture to understand what might it mean. Because nowhere else does it really fully, completely answer that. But here's the thing. There's a way in which we can come to a, an understanding of what he meant when we understand the context in which he said it. And let me give you an example. If you were to go to a conference or a convention that was related to your career, your profession, right? Some of you, let's just say some of you in here are, are, are in the tech industry, computer industry, and all that kind of stuff. If you were to go to Silicon Valley to, to a conference or around your profession, you would understand what they were saying and why they were saying it and all the breakouts and seminars. But if I went there, the one who can barely turn on his computer and, and he, I had to take my computer to a store to have them make space on it because I didn't know how to clean off some of the stuff that was on it, right? I just didn't know what was going on. If I went to your convention and I sat in your breakouts and your seminars, no one standing up there would ever stop and define every single word and term they meant because the rest of you were meant to be there and you understood everything they were saying, right? This is what's happening here in Genesis chapter 1. We have to understand that there's no greater elaboration to what Moses is saying because those who would have read it and those who would have heard it would have understood exactly what he was meaning by choosing to use the words that he used. And so if we're going to grow in our depth of understanding of what it means to be made in the image and after the likeness of God first, what that means, and then what the initial implications are, we have to put ourselves back in Moses' day. We need to go back into the land of Egypt and the pharaohs and of Mesopotamia and the kings, right? We have to understand what would have been understandable to them. And as we begin to do that and explore what this means, we begin to see that being created in the image of God and after his likeness is a descriptor of who we are as well as a role that we fulfill. It's an identity and it's an assignment. It helps us understand who we are and what we do. And so we'll only get through the first part this week, and I don't even know now that I'm watching the clock that we'll make it that far, but we have to actually start by what it means. What is an image? Right? It would help to understand what that means if we're going to try to understand what it says. The Hebrew word that's used right there is used elsewhere in Scripture and in the writing of the day almost always to mean some type of created representation. Three-dimensional, crafted, created representation. Think statue, an image. Crafted to represent. That's what the actual word means. And it makes sense. Back in that day, think about the Egyptian empire. Don't worry about anybody else. Think about the Egyptian empire. And it's massive scale and size. It was enormous. Travel across that empire was very slow. So, so the pharaohs, they, they couldn't be everywhere that they needed to be. They couldn't be on the most far-flung edge of the empire and back in the center of the empire in any quick manner of time. So here's what would happen. They would create these images. They would have these statues built. 
and they would be littered throughout their empire. In every town, in every village, in every city, everywhere that was part of the Egyptian empire, same for Mesopotamia and Babylon, would have these of the pharaoh or of the king. Those statues, those images reflected to those who lived there who was in charge. It reflected Pharaoh's authority. It represented his rule all the way out to that edge village on the edge of the empire. This was a practice that still goes on in in Central Asia and in in some parts of of Far East Asia. In North Korea, you'll still see this. If you hear stories of, of, of the statues that are littered throughout that region and that place of the family. It was a representation of who's in authority. It's reflecting to those who are there who's in authority. And here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Moses uses this word when it refers to God's intention for humanity. We were created and crafted by God to be his representative. Something he intended and he purposed and he made and he placed Now, just understanding what the word means carries some implications that would have been understood then because of their exposure to these things. The first implication that would have been heard and would have been understood is that with this idea that we are this image, there comes with it an inherent humility to it. See, some of these images of the pharaohs or of the kings that were all throughout the empire, some of them were really tall and made of stone or precious metal, but the vast majority weren't. They were small. So small, people could carry them with them. So small, they would be in people's houses. And to be that small, most of them were crafted of sun-baked clay. That's what they were made of. And if they're made of sun-baked clay, what does that mean about them? What what, what does that mean? What's, What's capable? What's possible? They could break. They're fragile. When God's people heard this, And then heard in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that the Lord God formed the man out of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. They understood and they heard, we're not 10 feet tall and bulletproof. We're not made out of diamond-encrusted titanium for everyone to see. You know, anyone over the age of 40 understands this fragility. Right? I live with a 17-year-old who still thinks he's invincible, probably, but... I'm 46, going the other direction. You understand your fragility. You understand how breakable you really are. But understand this. This reality of Genesis 1, chapter 26, the use of this image and what the implication of it is, this is before Genesis 3. This is before sin and death even enter the picture. And so if it communicates a sense of creation and humility and even fragility within the own use of the term, how much more so now on the other side of Genesis chapter 3? How much more so should our understanding of what it means to be human in part is to have this fragility and and breakability about us create in us a deepening level of humility, right? But that's just one implication, one side of the coin. The other one is tremendous. God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. He didn't say, let us make man in the image of a monkey or the image of a sequoia, or the image of a redwood, or the image of the Grand Canyon, or the image of the cosmos, or the image of the depths of the seas. 
see, those things were too trivial. Those things were far too insignificant to describe who you are. You are created in the image and after the likeness of your creator. And if you even give yourself a moment, even right now, even if you just closed your eyes, gave yourself a moment to just consider what that carries with it. You were created intentionally in the image and after the likeness of your creator. A moment's thought about that should take your breath away. The inherent significance, the inherent value, the inherent dignity that comes with that proclamation. But here's the thing. Even in the church, this is not often our default understanding or, or, or the mold that shapes our understanding of, of what it actually means to be human. Also, often we can say things with our mouths. You can give me all the right answers to the questions, but what we think about ourselves tells an entirely different story. If we're really honest, what we think about ourselves more often mirrors the, the story of our day, the, the secular narrative that you and I are just more evolved animals. We're just smarter animals. But friends, that could not be more contrary to what God says about us in his word. It is so contrary to his intention and his declaration about you. You've got to feel the weight and the force of how this would have been heard in Moses' day. You see, in Moses' day, these are words of liberation. These are words of freedom. These are words of resistance, right? You see, in his day, there were only a very select few number of people who could ever be considered made or intended after the image or likeness of their God. You know who that was? Pharaoh, the king, the same one who made the likenesses and image of themselves and scattered them throughout the empire. Everyone else in the hierarchy of their world was nothing. They were the only ones that were given that kind of value, that kind of declaration. So imagine yourself for a moment on the edge of the land of promise, right? You're about to walk into the land that God had promised your forefathers. Moses is reminding God's people of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, of, of who they are and who he is and all that he's done, how they've responded and how he's responded. He's written it all down for them. They'll be the first generation to take the steadfastness of God in written form into the new land. And they're there and they're hearing it. And these grandchildren and children of their parents and forefathers who served for 400 years as Pharaoh's slaves, treated the way they were by Pharaoh's justification of him being in the image of God and them being nothing else. 400 years of enslavement. And they hear, God said, let us make just Pharaoh, not just the king. Let us make man. Let us make humanity in our image, and after our likeness. 
Moses recorded these things down under the inspiration of God for the hearts of his people going into the land of promise to help them push back against the lies and the stories that are coming from everywhere around them that would give a different answer to that question. And it's not just words of resistance to help them be clear on who they are and who God is so they can understand who they are as humans and how they live. It's also to protect them because they're about to go into their own land. All of a sudden, they're not going to be under anybody's thumb. How are they going to treat everybody else? What happens when they're the ones who have the land? What happens when foreigners come into their land? How are they going to respond to who people are? Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. David captured the fullness of it, I think, in Psalm 8. When he said, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, but you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. What else can you say when you think about that? But, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Whatever you think and hear, you've got to hear David sum this up for you. You are a big deal to God. You are a bigger deal to God than you probably think. You are a way bigger deal than the stories of our world want to tell you that you are. But when you hear Genesis 1 and you hear Psalm 8, is that how you think about the person who just took the last spot in short pump in the parking lot? Or about that person that got the promotion in the house that you wanted? Or about that person that seems to effortlessly have the body that you want? Is that how you think about yourself? That's more important. Is that how you think about yourself? So yes, Moses was helping God's people under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit push back against the lies. You're not worthless. You're not a random byproduct of time and chance. You're not a God either. But you're created in God's image. And that comes with a deep humility, but a tremendous dignity. And at the same time, the more aware they are of who they are, the more aware they become of what it means to be human, created in the image and likeness of God, that then begins to shape how they live, how they see other people. How are they going to treat people in this new land? Because the reality of it is, they're going to be tempted just like we are to measure someone else's dignity by their own standards. Their income, their possessions, their education, their beauty, their career. That's how we do it. Right? That's how we measure someone's worth. That's how we measure someone's value. That's how we measure someone's dignity. At least in the Instagram world, that's how we do it. They're going to face similar temptations. These words of the Lord about what it means to be human are a reminder and a warning because we know that entering the promised land, just like our life here on this earth, it's after Genesis chapter 3. 
And we don't experience life the way that Genesis chapter one describes it. We were created in his image and after his likeness. That's an identity. But it also carries with it an assignment. It also carries with it a role. It also shapes not just how we understand who we are, but how we live. And so we're going to unpack that in more depth in the weeks to come. But let me just give you one fundamental thing that it means about how we live, what the implications are, all right? Just give me a few minutes. Fair? Fundamentally, images were meant to do one thing. You know what it was? To image. That's what they do. It's not a trick question. Images were created to image. They were created to reflect. Those images scattered throughout the empire, they were there to reflect the authority of the Pharaoh, reflect the authority of the king. That's the fundamental role, right? Well, so far, at least as of the latest count, God has scattered 7.765 billion images throughout his created kingdom, throughout his created order. And Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 tells us that these images are meant to image or reflect him. And the best way to think about it, I think, and I didn't come up with this, I heard this, so don't give me any credit for it. I don't know who started it though. It's not to think so much as they would have in that day like a statue. I want you to think about like a mirror. All right, that's a better way to picture it. If you're going to reflect the light that comes from above horizontally onto someone else to help them see, you've got to take that mirror and you've got to tilt it till it hits just about 45 degrees so that when the light hits the mirror, it reflects horizontally, right? That is what we were created to be and do. We were created to be 45 degree mirrors, angled mirrors that reflect the light of God's brightness and glory horizontally all throughout his created order. We were to reflect him as we went about our assignment of stewarding the created order and multiplying and filling the earth. But it's not how we experience the world, is it? It's not how we experience our own thoughts of ourselves. It's not how we experience our life with one another. This is why Moses had to write these things for them. You see, we spent time, Genesis chapter 3, we saw that Adam and Eve bought a lie, an alternative story about who God is and what he's like and ultimately what it meant to be human. And when they bought that story and sin entered into the picture, that, that mirror in one sense, you could say was shattered, just fractured. It still reflects, but it doesn't reflect fully and accurately. But I, I like the way that, that John Piper said it more than, than that. Piper said that in Genesis chapter three, we see Satan persuade us that our image is more beautiful than God's image. And so here's what happens. Think about it. We flip the mirror over. So now the back of the mirror is facing God. No light is reflected. Rather, it casts a shadow. And you and I fall in love with the shadow. And if you were to think about it, if the mirror turns over now, what is the reflection we're looking at? Ourselves. And we have fallen way more in love with ourselves than we would ever dare imagine, right? And we've been loving ourselves primarily ever since. So the image is shattered, it's tarnished, it's turned, and it's not lost. But it doesn't reflect the way it was created to reflect. And this has consequences. It carries implications. In fact, in Genesis chapter 9, God tells Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by his blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So you can't tolerate that murder. Why? 
Because that person that was murdered was created in the image and likeness of God. It's still there even after Genesis chapter 3. It's still there. James would go as far to say in James chapter 3 verse 9, with the tongue that God created, the tongue that God gave us, the ability to speak with that mouth and tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with the same tongue, we curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God. He's reminding the church of how absurd it is to take that tongue and that gift of God and try on one hand to bless God with it and turn around and curse one another with it. Here's the implication I want you to see. One, yes, even after Genesis chapter 3, the image still remains. Tarnished as it is, shattered as it may be, flipped over as it was designed, right? But here's the other implication. Everything from cursing someone with our mouth to murdering them and taking their life is an Imago Dei issue. Everything. This is fundamental to understanding so many of the discussions that we're having. First and foremost, it's an Imago Dei issue. Your cursing, your gossip, your lying, your slander, it's an Imago Dei issue. You are taking from someone else the inherent dignity they possess being created in the image and likeness of God. Taking their life all the way on the other end of the spectrum, it's an Imago Dei issue, first and foremost. Because they, regardless of what you think they did or think they deserve, were created in the image and likeness of God. The full spectrum is Imago Dei issues. And I want to sit with that just for a second. Someone in here can tell me who said this. I know who said it, but I want to see if you know. They said another Christian concept, no less crazy, has, has passed even more deeply into the tissue of modernity. I love that image, tissue of modernity. The concept of the equality of souls before God. This concept furnishes the prototype of every theory of equal rights. Who said it? Anybody know? Nietzsche. The man who declared that God was dead, that life is nothingness, said that the fundamental idea of human rights and equality of man is a Christian concept. That's where it comes from. Imagine the difference between two societies. One who grounded their efforts, their discussions, their life, and the manner of their being in the idea that all people were created in the image and likeness of God versus one who tried to ground the significance and dignity and worth of people in a civilization or a society without the idea of God. This is where cognitive dissonance begins to meet the road. If you try to remove the image of God from your discussion of, of rights and dignity and justice and value and worth, on what ground do you have to argue that worth? Where does it come from? Oh, is it because you can think? People can think, therefore they deserve to be protected. Well, what happens when they can't think anymore? I can tell you what's happening. Just watch the news. Well, they can reason. We can create well, what happens when you can't anymore. We can do things that other animals can't do. We have opposable thumbs. We can add to the work of society. Well, what happens when your body doesn't let you do it anymore? Trying to argue these things around dignity and value and significance and justice and worth without starting and grounding in the image and likeness of God is like trying to build it on sand. It doesn't work. It doesn't last. It's ultimately not sustainable. But friends, it ought not be. 
Imagine, imagine the difference it would make if we actually took these kinds of things seriously. Imagine what it would be like if we took the Imago Dei seriously. There are times in the history of the church when it seemed to make a difference. The early church put the Roman Empire to shame because they deeply valued the significance of the Imago Dei. Christians would go out to the trash piles outside the city and rescue children who were left there to die. Not because they were theirs, but because they were created in the image and likeness of God. They opened up their homes, they opened up their lives to take care of orphans, to take care of widows, to take care of the poor, to feed and clothe those who needed it. Why? Because they were earning something from God? No, fundamentally underneath, it's because they understood that those people were created in the image and likeness of God. What would happen if you actually began to take this reality seriously? Yes, the early church were single-issue people, but the issue at hand was the Imago Dei. This mattered in the early days of our nation as well. You've all gone to history class in school. You've heard of the, the famous Dred Scott versus Sanford case, right? Scott suing the country, ultimately a federal lawsuit for his freedom as a slave. He was a slave. Ultimately, the Supreme Court answer came back that he would not have his freedom. But guess what? Every time the Supreme Court gives an, uh, 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 a result or an opinion, those who voted against it give a dissenting opinion, right? The dissenting opinion in the Dred Scott case, listen to this. John McLean, you never hear about him in class, but John McLean, Supreme Court Justice, wrote, a slave is not mere chattel or property. He bears the impress of his divine maker, and he is destined to an endless existence in all of eternity. The argument for the, for the dissent to the decision, it wasn't law, it was the Imago Dei. It was the Imago Dei. Let us make man in our image. Not the king, not the pharaoh, not this group, not that group. Let us make man. If we took it seriously, how would it change the way we actually thought about ourselves and about other people and the way we began to live? All of a sudden, you begin to see the reality and the depth and the significance of the issue all around you. Abortion is an Imago Dei issue. Human trafficking, it's an Imago Dei issue. Pornography, it's an Imago Dei issue. All of the industry around that reality, I'll just say it that way for everybody, it's an Imago Dei issue. Domestic violence, it's an Imago Dei issue. You understand it? Homelessness, it's an Imago Dei issue. Poverty, it's an Imago Dei issue. Afghan resettlement, it's an Imago Dei issue. You can, you can argue these things all you want from any different platform you want, but underneath it all, if it doesn't come from the image and likeness of God, it's not going to be sustainable. Right? I laugh at my kids all the time. They want me to be on preacher sneakers so bad. But do you realize the shoes that would get me on preacher sneakers were made by kids younger than mine? Somewhere else in the world making five cents a day? It's an Imago Dei issue. If you really began to take it seriously, if the church began to take it seriously, what would it do about the way we lived? What would it do about the way we understood ourselves? What would it do about the way we understood those that were around us? 
you and I were created in the image and likeness of God. How do we get to this? Let me end this way. I've run out of time. I'm sorry. How do we get there? Because the reality of it is I love myself way too much. I'm way too comfortable trying to make space for all the dissonance in my own heart and life to really think about it. How do I actually get there? How do I get to the place where this becomes so serious and significant that it changes the way I view myself and I view the world around me? The answer in a word is Jesus. That's how, right? Genesis 1 through 3 reminds us that we're not just created in the image and likeness of God. It's not just reminding us what it means to be human. It reminds us that God had promised to right what sin had wronged and to restore what sin had tarnished. You see, it's in Jesus that that mirror that was created to be 45 degrees to reflect the brightness of God's glory through us and horizontally to a watching world, it's in and through Jesus that that mirror that sin turned gets turned back around. Slowly but surely, Jesus begins to restore that image back to its rightful condition. The tarnish is being removed, the shattering being repaired, the angle being restored. It's only in and through Jesus that you and I can increasingly begin to to reflect the light and the brightness of God's glory and God's grace and God's mercy and in any way, shape, form, or fashion allow it to be sustainable. It's only in the gospel that it gets restored and it's only in the gospel that it's sustainable. That's where the endurance comes from. Apart from it, there is no endurance for these things. It's only here. It's in Jesus that you and I begin to reflect, begin to live in a way, think in a way, feel in a way, speak in a way that begins to call people's attention to the brightness, to the mercy, and to the grace of God. Hear me very clearly here. I promise I'm closing. Here, I promise. I'm not telling you what to do. This is not do more, be better. I promise. Don't, I, I do the best I can to never stand up here and do that. This is not be better. This is not do more. All I'm saying is, are you willing to actually think? Are you willing to actually take seriously what God says about what it means for you to be human? Are you really willing to take seriously what God says about all of us being created in his image and after his likeness? I think of a church we're willing to begin to take that thing seriously what our friends in Nashville at Emmanuel will talk about all the time would actually become more of a reality. They talk about all the time making the real Jesus undeniable to the place we are. The way that you and I can begin to make the real Jesus, and not the Jesus of people's imaginations, not the Jesus of people's secular stories, not the Jesus of people's personal hopes and wishes and dreams, but the real Jesus, the way he becomes undeniable. Like, a place and a people have to take issue with him. The way he becomes undeniable is as you and I begin to take the image of God seriously. Being created in his image and likeness. Others being created in his image and likeness. And being restored back to that by his mercy and his grace through his son. Brian Chapel said, we're redeemed to reflect our savior. Called to be mirrors of his glory by his grace. Because we're in union with Jesus, we're meant to join in the great story of God's redemption for which Christ came into the world. That's part of what it means to be human. Now, friends, you and I, we're going to respond to God's word together. And as we do, I want you to be reminded that even in our response, we are remembering our humility and the dignity that comes 
from being created in his image and likeness. And so this morning, in just a minute, you're going to be invited. If you have if you've believed upon Jesus in faith, repented of your sins, trusted in him as king and savior, you're going to be remi- invited to come forward, to take a piece of bread, to dip it into a cup, and to remember his death in your place for your sins, his work of restoring that which sin has marred and tarnished and shattered. And as you do, you're not just proclaiming your confidence in him, but you're remembering. You were created in the image and likeness of your maker. And for that reason, you matter. For that reason, you're, you're valuable. You're valuable enough even for something like this for his son to die in your place for your sins, to restore back to you that which sin has tarnished and broken. You're valuable enough for him to die in your place to offer you salvation. That's how valuable you are. And that's a remarkable thing. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're going to respond together this morning. Father, I said a lot of words, took a lot of time felt even at times like I was fumbling through darkness and mud to try to communicate something that you can do in a moment what I can't do in 10 hours. And so I asked that whatever I said that wasn't clear or confusing, Lord, you would let it fall away and you would shine into our hearts the brightness and the clarity of your declaration of us and what it means to be human, to be made in your image, your purpose for us, your value towards us. Lord, help us to see and to cherish so deeply what you've done for us in your son to restore us back, to bring us back to that which you created us for. Lord, we ask this morning you would do that thing in his good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.